Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Irish Economics Podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Graham Brownlow to discuss the Northern Irish economy. So Northern Ireland hasn't got much focus so far in the series, so hopefully this episode will address this balance. Many of you will have heard our first episode with John Fitzgerald, where we discussed the economy of the Republic since the foundation of the state. And hopefully this will serve as a companion where we can go through the economics of the Northern Irish economy during a similar time frame. I learned a lot from this discussion. Uh, growing up in Longford, we hear a lot about the politics of Northern Ireland, but not so much about the economy. Of course, politics has influenced the economy, and Graham takes us through that. But it's not always in ways that you would expect. Uh, one such example is the DeLorean car from Back to the Future, and how that ended up being built just outside Belfast. It's a fascinating story. All right. Okay. So hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Irish Economics Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Graham Brownlow, who's lecturer in economics at Queen's University, Belfast. Uh, Graham has done a lot of work in the fields of economic history and business history with a particular focus on Northern Ireland. So it is with great pleasure that we have him on today to discuss the development of the Northern Irish economy. So Graham, great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Um, Okay. So you mentioned earlier that in terms of the development of the Northern Irish economy, you would tend to frame it in the context of uh, creative destruction and a, and a number of long-run trends. Could you give us some insight maybe onto what, what that entails? Yeah, okay. So I think uh, creative destruction, I think, is a pretty good way of framing long-run economic history because it makes a lot of valuable points that we miss when we think about more short-run macro-type factors. So just to remind people, creative destruction, idea associated with Joseph Schumpeter, is the idea that economies are not in a state of equilibrium, that actually what economies consist of in capitalism is the creation of new sectors, new methods, new products that necessarily destroys old methods and old processes. And so when we observe regional development, rather than the idea in the 1960s, uh, there was an idea that Northern Ireland had too many staples and that the problem in Northern Ireland was just the decline of staples. I think when we think about creative destruction, we recognize that it's not just the decline of old staples, which in many ways is inevitable, uh, but it's also the failure to create new industries, new technologies, innovation, et cetera, that is needed to explain long-run development in general, and I think Northern Ireland in particular. So that's the creative destruction point, and it links into my general observation that in explaining Northern Irish long-run development, there are basically three factors. One are the factors that it shares with the long-run failures of the United Kingdom. So that's a long-run story that's not unique to Northern Ireland. The second 
The second point are there are actually a number of factors that actually magnified versions of British problems. So actually what you see is a lot of problems that are long run problems of the British economy are actually existed in Northern Ireland but in magnified uh, force in, in a magnified form. Um, and last and not least, uh, there are problems that are unique to Northern Ireland um, that a lot of non-economists would focus on um, that takes us in the areas of politics and, and such and so forth. So those, that's the way I frame it conceptually. I think creative destruction is a very useful insight. Sure. But I think about regional development and Northern Ireland in particular. And the three uh, three way split in terms of the long run development. That So those two things put together gave us a lot of insights that then we can think about the productivity problems that Northern Ireland has had over the long run. And I think that that's probably the way I, I tend to frame a lot of my uh, discussions in various papers um, when I think about Northern Ireland. So, uh, so as we're hoping to review the Northern Irish economy, perhaps it would be useful to start from what many people take as the beginning, the heyday of Northern Ireland as a centre for shipbuilding and other industrial activity. Perhaps you can take us through how Northern Ireland became established as a powerhouse in this regard and how a decline eventually came about. Okay, so the story of uh, linen and the story of shipbuilding and other industries within Belfast, like um, mineral waters and tobacco and rope, etc. Um, I think if we take it, start with linen. I mean, the story of linen is, is a story that goes back into the really the 18th century. And it's a story of uh, initially rural Ulster, uh, places in Armagh, um, and then the mechanisation of linen in the 19th century and the growth of Belfast are intertwined. So linen becomes, yes, it's provincial. You've, so you've linen towns like Lisburn and Lurk and et cetera. But um, the, the primary driver is the mechanization in Belfast. Um, so that's that's the, the primary driver of linen in the 19th century. Shipbuilding is a, a more recent phenomena. It, it's very much 19th century onwards, uh, primarily focused around Belfast, but there is some shipbuilding activity in other part uh, in, in, in Derry, London Derry, um, but it's mainly Belfast, and that's a 19th century phenomenon associated initially with the, I think, the Belfast Harbour Commissioners. Um, Bel Belfast, the, the lagging is not unlike the Clyde, wasn't originally that well suited to shipbuilding, so it had to be uh, Queen's Island, etc., was created, and, um, and so that was developed. Then you had Workman Clark and Harnell Wolf that were the two major shipyards. Um, Harnell Wolf, the more famous one that survived the 1930s, the big yard, and uh, ironically, the wee yard, despite the fact it was maybe the fourth or fifth biggest yard in the world at its <laughs> peak, Workman Clark. Um, and these these yards were, I think, at their peak, employing Harnell Wolf, employing 25,000, I think, directly at its peak. Um, and, and indirectly, uh, many, many more. So you have these these huge uh, industrial uh, footprints in Belfast of of linen, and uh, actually it's wider. I mean, it and it, it 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 has a sh uh, shirt making up in Derry, for instance, um, handkerchiefs in Bangor, etc. But you have linen in uh, Ulster that's widespread in the 18th century. Um, and then you have, from the 19th century on, you've shipbuilding. Um, that's very much a, a greater Belfast phenomena, urban phenomena, East Belfast phenomena. Yeah. And so these are 
what, what explains these phenomena? Okay, so why textiles and shipbuilding? Well, essentially, linen draws initially on pools of cheap labor. Um, so the, the, the story of linen was originally it was household production was very much involved in the production of linen. And it's only really in the 1820s when linen becomes mechanized that there's a shift between the transaction costs and production costs of linen that makes it effective to make it into a factory firm-based uh, mm. activity. So actually, linen was an early outsourcer. Um, and I, I, my very first paper is actually about that. Um, right, interesting. But that, that, that changes in the 1820s. Um, um, in, the, in the early 20s, when it, the mechanization comes in and technologically it becomes much easier to produce linen at scale in factories and household production withers away and we move to mass textile production. Um, the temperature and the, the climate and the, and the rainfall of Ulster is important to the story of linen because linen is a very heterogeneous product with different threads um, and a damp climate, rather like cotton, is uh, helpful to uh, handling these textiles. So it's not a coincidence that uh, uh, cotton develops in Lancashire, uh, part of the world known for its rainfall, and linen develops in Ulster, part of the world also known for its, its rainfall. Yeah. Um, I, that, that's not a coincidence. Yeah, no, that's, uh, ship, uh, shipbuilding, the other hand, shipbuilding, on the other hand, develops uh, also, obviously, in the pool of cheap labour as part of the story, but it also develops as part of the whole uh, network of specialisation within different shipyards. Um, so different shipyards very much develop different competencies in uh, different types of ships. So Belfast, famously, the Titanic, you know, ocean liners was a big part of the shipbuilding uh, industry. And part of the reason why employment was so high in Belfast was that that's a very labor intensive um, form of shipbuilding. Yeah. Far more, far more labor intensive than bulk carriers, because of course you've got to fit out uh, ocean liners with all the different people who aren't necessarily building the ship, but building the interiors of the ship. Mm. Um, uh, and, and and that leads to lots of craftsmen earning large salaries as skilled workers, etc. So there's very much a um, the story of shipbuilding after the 1930s is a story of one firm, Harnell Wolf, um, and before the 1930s, it's a story really of two firms. Story of linen, on the other hand, is a story of many many firms, um, and those firms don't consolidate um, and are very politically interconnected with. Um, the Stormont government after 1920, and they're very involved uh, before partition in, in unionist politics as well in the linen industry. Shipbuilding, on the other hand, of course, is very much an export, uh, as, as linen also are export orientated, but shipbuilding policy is very much focused at the level of the GB government because it, it, the resources required in, in terms of shipbuilding policy are way beyond the capacity of the uh, the, the Northern Irish government after 1920. Okay, that's yeah, that's really interesting. And so you mentioned before, or I read one of your papers, you mentioned that um, there, was a, there was a switch around maybe 1914 or thereabouts where there was, is it a second industrial revolution and Belfast didn't really um, take advantage of that to the same extent. Could you maybe tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so this is the story, again, about creative destruction. Now, economic historians um, 
find the term second industrial revolution is quite controversial, but I'll, I'll, I'll run with it. Um, so the term second industrial revolution is, uh, as it suggests, it's, a, it's the second wind of, of industrialization. Um, and it's basically the period you could roughly suggest, roughly from about 1870 to the First World War, 1914, uh, in which mass consumer products, uh, electricity, et cetera, et cetera, kicks in and industrializes and new consumer products come in. Um, why this is important is the, in the Second Industrial Revolution, uh, Ulster doesn't capitalize it. On, on that phenomena nearly to the extent it did during the first industrial revolution of the 18th, early 19th century. And so again, it's a story about creative destruction. It's not so much that we have destruction, you know, the decline of staples. Well, the decline of staple industries is, is to be expected, you know, as we move into a world of um, uh, alternatives to linen in the 20th century, and we move into a world of alternatives to shipbuilding uh, in the 20th century, those declines are to be expected. The puzzle is why not the creation of new industries in uh, in Northern Ireland that offsets uh, our Ulster before partition, that offsets the decline of these industries. Um, and, and we can speculate about some of those, those sources. Um, but really my, my primary concern in my writings has been post-1945, but I do think there's something very interesting happens in the economy of, of Ulster and indeed Ireland between 1870 and 1914, because, um, you know, it's it, when I was first taught Irish economic history, um, the observation was made that, you know, uh, Ireland left the United Kingdom at the period of time it had done best out of being in the United Kingdom. So any sort of economic determinist arguments about Irish history uh, are, are too simplistic. But there is something peculiar or odd about the fact, and I don't think it's a coincidence now, mm. that we have these sort of home rule debates going on for three, four decades. Uh, at the same time as I think the new second dust revolution possibilities are uh, not taken up. But that's quite speculative. I haven't done really, really detailed research in that area. But I think there are enough smoking guns. Okay. Um, no, no pun intended. Sure. Um, to suggest, <laughs> to just to suggest, to suggest that there is there is some relationship between that period of from the eighteen eighties, particularly through to the nineteen tens, of that whole period of uh, mm. political agitation coinciding with problems in the competitiveness of business. Um, and I think we can think about why that might be, given uh, the links between the business community and the political elite in Ulster. OK, so, so the, the political sort of aspects may have held back. Yeah, I, I think actually, I mean, I, I wrote about this a long time ago in sort of 2006-07, long before Brexit. But I think Brexit kind of germinated in my mind the issue that actually businesses have limited time okay so you know introductory economics the opportunity cost of time mm. and so businesses really boards of directors etc want to be uh, thinking about innovation cost reduction those sorts of things um, but when you have a period in certainly within unionist politics from the 1880s through to the 1910s, where a lot of the leadership uh, of 
of, of unionist resistance to home rule were actually major figures within business. Um, that's time not been spent developing new products. Sure. That's time not developed. That's time not not been spent in innovating. Um, this also coincides with the whole British phenomena of what's called the entrepreneurial failure debate. There's a, a big discussion about what goes wrong in entrepreneurship within the UK in this period. So I think you could tell, and again, I'm speculating because I haven't really done serious research in this area, but I do think one could hypothesize that the time that was being spent on political agitation can't have been helpful to businesses in uh, developing new goods and services if they were spending their time basically meddling in politics. That's the first observation. The second observation is by the time we get through to 1945, um, then I think that uh, an established link between politics and business has been created. And I'm not sure that that is, has been all to the good for Northern Ireland since mm -hmm. 1945 to the present day. Okay. So moving on to maybe your, your, your area where you have done a bit more work on, um, like 1945 onwards, and industrial policy during this period. Um, one thing you've, you've discussed was, was rent-seeking. Could you maybe tell us how, how this plays out? Okay, so, so just a reminder for those who maybe haven't studied rent-seeking or, or revision for those who have. So we, we, we tend to think in introductory economics about profits and efficiency. Um, and we know from you know, Econ 101 that monopoly is associated with you know, higher prices, uh, lost output. So there's a welfare loss, um, often called the Harberger Triangle, the, after the economist uh, who first sort of me did measurement in this area. But that's not the whole story about monopoly and why it's damaging to an economy. Um, because the observation was made that actually, yes, monopolists get a monopoly rent, okay, and, and, and that's why they want to be monopolists. And monopolists have been rational <laughs> human beings. They want to invest resources to get secure that rent. And the question is, how much are they willing to spend in terms of securing that rent? Well, up to the value of that rent. Um, so rent-seeking essentially is how, how much in terms of resources in an economy, are you going to uh, invest in trying to secure these special privileges? Um, and of course, by securing those special privileges, A, you've incurred those resources in terms of securing the monopoly, and combine that with the welfare losses, makes monopoly look a lot less uh, efficient than if you simply looked at the classic Harburger triangle type story. So that's the that's the sort of conceptual point. Um, now, it ties in with rent-seeking because uh, what then happens is the argument goes about when you design public policy, if you design public policy of a set of subsidies, um, then it's very much in the interest of uh, businesses to lobby for those subsidies because those subsidies are uh, essentially tax-free. <laughs> Yeah, and so they're actually very lucrative. Uh, whereas if you go for government purchases, well, you might get revenue, but you still get taxed on that revenue. So actually, you know, and this is a point goes back to George Stiegler, um, in a, a wonderful one-page note in the Journal of Political Economy back in 1966. 
the Stiegler made the observation that actually um, it's in the area of subsidies and tax privileges that we should be most concerned about type of rent seeking behaviour, although he didn't use the term, um, rather than government purchases. Uh, and that feeds very much into you know, rent seekings observed around the world and um, Anne Kruger uh, in her, very much developed the whole literature in, in sort of develop, developing countries. Uh, but we shouldn't get away from the fact that, that rent seeking can exist in developed economies. And while nowhere near the scale that you see in developing countries, it still can be pretty profound in its cumulative impacts within developed countries. How did the rent seeking then manifest in, in the Northern Irish economy during this period? Okay, so within Northern Ireland, uh, cutting a very long, tedious story short, yeah. you essentially had a situation where what after Northern Ireland's created, um, responsibilities were divided up between the British government and the Northern Irish government. Um, and from about 1920 through to 45, yes, there were examples of what we would now call rent-seeking, um, but they were restrained by the, the budget issue, the fact that the, the levels of resources sent to the Northern Irish government from Whitehall were comparatively small. But there was definite uh, examples. David Jordan, my PhD student who's just completed, um, has observed you know, evidence of all sorts of problems in people applying for subsidies or licenses and being confronted by the fact that the people who are granting the licenses or subsidies uh, are <laughs> already incumbents within an industry. Yeah. This obviously creates a problem which acts as a huge entry barrier. So again, uh, taking us back to the story about the Second Industrial Revolution, um, I think a lot of the problems before 1945 is a problem about not so much uh, destruction, but creation. Um, but what happens after 1945 is, and particularly after 1958 and 1963, is the scale of industrial policy intervention in Northern Ireland massively increases. So if you want to think of it this way, the size of the possible rents is, is increasing. Um, this is a problem. This, this would not be a problem in and of itself. Mm. You know, you can have you can have industrial policy that works elsewhere in the world very successfully and limit rent seeking. I mean, there are examples we can discuss. But in the Northern Irish context, this was complicated by the fact, and contemporaries knew this, but I think took a, a, an erroneous interpretation of it, that what Northern Ireland was unusual about was the ease of access uh, to policymakers. Um, at the time, people like a very eminent economists like Charles Carter. Uh, or uh, Lawrence uh, in standard politics text from the 1960s. And indeed, The Economist in its special issue from, I think, 1955, uh, all discussed the ease of access of policy makers and business leaders in Northern Ireland. And at the time, the consensus was that the ease of access um, was such as to help business in Northern Ireland thrive relative to GB. Um, you know, mm. uh, Charles Carter famously talked about the tiresome complexities that you faced within GB were avoided in Northern Ireland. The tiresome complexity of getting things done, um, he said, to a land where enterprise is made officially welcome. So at the time, people were well aware of this access. 
But if we look more closely, and this is where the archival digging comes in, and going back to Hansard and newspapers and all, we observe um, that uh, Northern Ireland didn't have the same conflict of interest regulations as the rest of the United Kingdom. Also, we observe that its, its, its grants subsidy system was much more generous than in GB. Um, and if we compare it to Scotland, uh, which I've done elsewhere, uh, if you look compared to Scotland, Scotland essentially after 1945 had far less generous subsidies. They were generally loans, not grants. And monies were spent on public housing um, and there weren't what's called advanced or free factories. Uh, Northern Ireland didn't spend on public housing, which as we were to find out in the 1960s was problematic, put it mildly. Um, and they'd have free factories. Now, this is, this is a situation that goes on till 1963, that what happens is that essentially business leaders who are well-connected often were politicians. So if you think of the Venn diagram mm -hmm. of business elite and political elite, you have a massive overlap of the business elite and political elite. Um, and you also have the fact that people can award themselves free factories or friends or family or whatever. And I'm afraid the evidence does suggest that went on. So far from ease of access in Northern Ireland being a competitive advantage for Northern Ireland, I think that when we go back to, say, Nick Craft's work, where he showed that there was an underperformance of growth in Northern Ireland, um, I think it's more compatible with a story that suggests that actually this awarding of resources was associated with politically well access businesses getting grants and subsidies rather than the best possible uh, enterprises. Mm. So I think there was a gap or a wedge between what was society's interest and what was in private interest. Um, and I think that there, the evidence for this is also reinforced because as I've shown, when the regulations are changed in 1963, there's a transformation in the businesses that receive the subsidies, um, they're, they become bigger, they're more efficient, they have lower costs, they're higher productivity and go through the list of all the different virtues they have um, and performance improves. And Northern Ireland actually grows faster than GB from 63 to 68. Female employment massively grows because one disadvantage of this rent-seeking system is it reinforces monopsony and linen. You know, linen was for a long time the major employer of females. And when uh, the linen lobby saw that possible new industries would come in that would look to hard female labour, obviously that could bid wages up. Mm. And there was large-scale political opposition to that happening. Um, and this, this isn't unique in Northern Ireland. I mean, you know, there, there are industrial towns in the north of England that could talk about where this sort of issue arose. Um, but these new industries emerge and drive up the female employment in Northern Ireland. I mean, so under Terence O'Neill, despite the fact that textile employment drops, the actual total employment of women uh, massively increases in Northern Ireland. Um, so there's there's a lot of a lot of issues where I think that sort of the Nick Crafts, who in his original paper only surmised um, that rent seeking might have existed. Um, I think that the evidence I showed in that 2007 paper yeah. uh, tends to corroborate that interpretation. 
I can think of a lot of examples of where there are business people who did well in politics and it seems one would compliment the other. I wonder the fact that Northern Ireland is perhaps a bit smaller, people might know each other a bit better. Would that have had a, a, had a factor to play in it? Yeah, well, I, I think, I'm afraid, I think that um, a lack of serious electoral competition um, is a big issue. And the fact that you had uh, for the 1950s, you know, the so-called New Industries Acts um, or capital grants. Uh, and one of the most bizarre smoking guns is the fact that in the 1950s, half of all the money uh, that was supposed to go to re-equipment for new industries, half of the money was going to the linen industry. Now, uh, by the 1950s, that's 130 years after really the establishment of linen in Belfast. Um, even even on the most generous interpretation, I don't think 130 years it can be associated to be new. Yeah. Um, so so when you when you look at it that way, I do think there are just connections, and I do think there are family connections uh, and overlaps. Um, in other words, what I'm suggesting, and, and I wrote my paper long before the renewable heat incentive scheme, the RHI scheme and scandal. Um, I think a lot of the behaviours one observes in that RHI, uh, the Cochrane Inquiry report that just came out earlier this year, mm. um, a few weeks ago, I, I do, we're not we're not an uncharted territory. Those behaviours did exist long before um, and had to be restrained. I think size is part of it. People wear multiple hats. Uh, size is also part of it because there's such a proximity and closeness of people. Um, and size is also part of it because the people who could be whistleblowers are, you know, ignored. <laughs> um, so I, I think I think there's issues. So electoral competition and size, I think, are probably issues. Uh, and the issues of of competition and the issues of efficiency, all the things that Alison Cuthbert in the first government commission report, the so-called economic survey of Northern Ireland. It came out in 1957. I mean, the story of that paper was interesting because that sat on the shelf for two years. Right. Um, because because they identified um, they identified problems in competition in Northern Irish economy. Um, and it's, it's interesting when you go back to the archive that actually there was a spin operation. <laughs> There's a 22-page document. Uh, that was given to, I think, all uh, unionist MPs that was to disassociate itself from the report that the Northern Irish government itself had commissioned in 1948. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I mean, going through it all, I, I think that, that there's enough evidence, I think, to point in the direction uh, that I do think that politics uh, and size and the dominance of certain groups, um, I do think does suggest that it did damage the Northern Irish economy. Now, I don't believe it's the only thing by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think if you want to explain the gap between Northern Ireland and GB, you need to think about what differs between Northern Ireland and GB. And this phenomena is, is clearly a phenomena that does differ from Northland and GB. Um, 
And you know, the, the, I, I think actually, if you look, if one was to look closer at the south, um, I, I think one would find quite similar behaviours in some sometimes in the south. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, 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 th- I think I think unfortunately, just a lot of these um, research just hasn't happened in the south. Sure. But uh, so I don't think I don't think Northern Ireland's unique, uh, and I, I don't think it's particular political philosophies. But it's interesting that your know, contemporaries were well aware of how important access was. Um, I mean, like I said, the Economist talks about an awful lot of it in its 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 entire special issue uh, back in the fifties. Nice. Uh, but at the time, people thought it was a, a good thing. Um, I think we now see that it's actually it was a far more mixed uh, mixed thing. So you mentioned Terence O'Neill there, Prime Minister of Northern Ireland in the 1960s. It seems that if ever there was a time for Northern Ireland to move towards a more outward-looking economy, it was under his stewardship. I understand he had meetings with Sean Mass and Whitaker, who are widely cited as the architects of opening the economy of the Irish Republic and setting the seeds for positive economic development. Was there ever a prospect of this happening under O'Neill's leadership in the North? Well, I, actually, uh, the causality, well, the first thing is Ken Whitaker and Terence O'Neill were great friends. Right, OK. Um, but uh, the other thing, actually, historically, it was actually the South imitating the North. OK, right. Um, the, you know, there's a 1950s paper by Charles Carter in Studies in which he talks about the Northern Irish commitment to foreign direct investment um, and talking about the, how much more liberal Northern Ireland was than the South at the stage. Um, and of course, until well into the 1990s, Northern Ireland per head was consistently higher than the South. So actually, if you look at the literature, it was what could the South learn from the North? Right. Um, again, you go back to the if you go back to the um, uh, uh, papers of the time, uh, the, again, 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 it's what can the South learn from the North? I mean, what differs, of course, is that the, the, the South was a, a national government. Uh, with all sorts of power over tax levers, mm. uh, for example, an education policy that the North just didn't have. Um, but actually, I think um, my reading of it is actually that the, the North was more an inspiration to the South than vice versa. If the North had an inspiration, uh, if the North had an inspiration, it was the the, the general intellectual move of of planning of uh, of GB you know, the national plan of the Labour government of 64, and even further back, um, the, 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 there's the growth poll literature that's, that's, that's risen up. There's also a number of economists like Charles Carter mentioned before, who are very influential on Ken Whitaker. Um, Lydon Ryan, Professor Trinday, who's from Portadown. Um, again, massively influential Whitaker. Um, and, 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 these, and a lot of these, when you look closely, you see that um, that there is a technocratic uh, a- atmosphere. People like Tom Wilson, I would say, he's a professor at Glasgow, mm. but was um, originally from Belfast, and he's very he's very good friends with um, a lot of the establishment in Belfast and London, um, and he becomes a very important figure when the troubles are up. Um, the, 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 there's a lot of modernisation thinking going on. Within uh, within the north and within the south, but I actually think if you were stand back dispassionately, um, it's actually uh, Whitaker is a great synthesizer of other people's ideas. Um, 
And uh, there's no doubt that I think Charles Carter, if you look at the paper and studies, what we associate with economic development is actually, it's actually far more Charles Carter's paper than actually economic development's text. Um, economic development, of course, being the title for Whitaker's paper that many cite as being the blueprint for the modern open economy of the Irish Republic. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, there's an old line in economics that a classic is much cited and little read. Um, and I think Whitaker's economic development is a classic of that genre. Right. Um, because actually, if you look at it, it's, it's actually primarily about agriculture. It's a very small state document. It talks about the affordability of welfare states. Um, it isn't really an industrial export oriented paper whatsoever. Whereas if you look at Carter's article, it's all about foreign direct investment and supply side technological and managerial advantages. Um, so actually, I think that what we come to know as sort of the post 60s southern uh, supply side revolution of Lamas and um, Whitaker, mm. in many ways, is actually more the fact that it's a consistent implementation of ideas of people like Lyden Ryan, Charles Carter, etc. Right. In, in, no, in no way would I detract from Whitaker's work in the area of Northern Irish politics. Um, I think I think that in future historians, I think, will increasingly come to recognise how important he was yeah. in, in having sanity within policy circles about Northern Ireland. Um, but I think that actually, if you look closely, he wasn't really an original economic thinker. Um, he's a great synthesizer, um, and uh, but I think that uh, it's actually the North <laughs> that actually le led the South for a long time yeah. because, of course, the North had higher income per head well into the 1990s, you know, um, and and you know mm. it, it, it wasn't like the Northern Ireland was a basket case. Sure, you know it, it. You know, actually, I mean, if we were to go and look at our, if we looked at Irish nationalist economic literature. Um, that wouldn't be the interpretation at the time. Indeed, um, there, there's a lot of rewriting of history that's gone on um, for, for, for understandable reasons. So around this, the 60s then, 70s, there would have been some industry, but this would have been a period of decline, I presume. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, you know, I mean, so one of the complexities and tractabilities of trying to think about the impact of the troubles in the Northern Irish economy is, the counterfactual is very complicated yeah. because even if the tr even if the troubles had not have occurred, let's imagine that that's an incredibly complicated <laughs> um, counterfactual to begin with. Um, even if that had not happened, we still would have had the oil shocks and the industrialization and all those other processes that began um, that, that that began in the fifties and sixties. You know, I think I think I'm right from memory. I think. The peak share of manufacturing employment GB was about 1955. Uh, the peak share for most developed economies, however, was much later, so about 1973, 74, Canada, Italy, etc. Um, if I look at Northern Ireland, like from memory, I think the figure is 1962. Um, so, you know, the industrialization kicks in uh, very early on, and then it's magnified by a lot of geopolitical as well as economic shocks. I mean, the industrialization is, is a fact of life, yeah. even if the troubles hadn't happened. Yeah. Um, those those facts those facts of life would have kicked in. So 
there's never a good time to have something like the Troubles, of course. But, you know, economically, you know, it, it's it's the worst possible, you know, perfect storm. That part of the, the part of the story of the Troubles and the way the Troubles uh, shapes the economy and vice versa is that it interacts with the Troubles mm. in a way. Um, that, 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 that makes it incredibly complicated. I mean, again, the archival work I've done when you're reading through the policymakers' notes, I mean, a lot of they're incredibly sophisticated in their thinking. Mm. Um, and it's incredibly difficult what they're trying to do because they're trying to deal with the deindustrialization of the north of England, Scotland, and all those other places that is going on at the same time as dealing with this very complicated political. Uh, situation um, for all the issues about resource allocation that are tied in uh, and with it so yeah. It, 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 yeah there's a lot of complexity um, and I'm not sure I don't think we can disentangle to a single number sure. there are a number of studies that try to do that I'm very skeptical of, of that I mean I've, I've done literature reviews of the literature on the troubles and um, uh, I, I, there are things we can certainly say the troubles did to the northern Irish economy but I think it would be wrong to turn around and um, have a single number. Yeah. And so would a lot of industry leading into this period would have been sustained by subsidies? You might have had a lot of heavily subsidised industry and then that's only there, you know, it's on life support, essentially. Yeah. So, I mean, the, yeah. So one, one way to think about it is that, that there's a higher level of subsidy in Northern Ireland consistently from 1945. Um, and actually, one of the fascinating issues about the early years of the Troubles is how both uh, unionists and nationalists lobby to ensure that the gap, what was, what was actually at the time called the inducement gap, between subsidy in Northern Ireland relative to GB is preserved. Right. Um, so you have these, what, what now look like unholy alliances of of all the political class of Northern Ireland, clamouring to ensure the inducement gap is preserved. Um, that's the, the first observation. The second observation, of course, is high inducement gaps uh, are required as a sort of risk premium. You can think of it that way. Mm. Uh, and more particularly after what's called the Kern Cross Accord in 1971, there's an explicit recognition of what well, what we'd call an economic economic causation problem, um, but you know more generally a vicious circle problem. Um, Current cross in 1971 uh, is, is called in notionally by the Northern Irish government, but actually uh, it was the Treasury that that, that decided it should be Current cross. Um, Current cross had to investigate the fact that the various development plans in Northern Ireland were all off target. Nice. Um, now, what happens again in Whitehall uh, is the Treasury are very slow in the uptake because of uh, what's called the barber boom and, and things like that that are going on at the level of the UK economy. The Northern Irish economy continues to grow through 69, 70, early 71. Then very quickly after the introduction of internment and violence, it spikes up. Then everything goes haywire. Mm. But in, in Whitehall, a lot of Treasury officials are very sceptical about the messages coming out from the Northern Irish government because they're just looking at the data that shows output continuing to grow, blah, blah, blah. 
Um, they're missing the point that the, the situation has changed very quickly. So Karen Cross is brought in uh, and he creates, uh, um, I think, a, a very important document, the Karen Cross report, in which he just says, well, you've got a cumulative causation problem here that essentially unemployment is recruiting sergeant for uh, paramilitaries. Um, and violence, of course, creates unemployment through destroying investment. So what you have is a situation where uh, violence destroys investment. Okay, mm. Investment then falls, unemployment goes up. Unemployment goes up, which acts as a recruiting sergeant for paramilitaries. Right. <laughs> violence goes up. So this feedback loop. Yeah, so he, he then identifies in that 71 document that it isn't a question of stabilising the economy versus stabilising society. That's not the argument. He actually um, turns around and says, what you actually need to do is you need to short circuit this collapse. And Curran Cross, of course, one of the reasons why he was selected for this report is he had worked for the economic section during the Second World War, the economic section were a group of economists who were involved in wartime planning, mm. um, uh, people like Lionel Robbins, etc., um, are associated with uh, Tom Wilson, who I've mentioned before. Um, the, the, these guys were all involved. Um, and so what Kern Cross said is you needed to create uh, a way to short circuit this, this vicious circle, this, this feedback loop. So he said what you need to do is stop investment collapsing so he said you needed to create what he called the Northern Ireland Finance Corporation, what becomes the Northern Ireland Finance Corporation. And it basically throws money, 50 million pounds is the original budget, uh, into manufacturing in Northern Ireland to stabilise production and investment with a hope that unemployment doesn't rise too far and hence the political situation can be stabilised. Okay. And that's very much the philosophy that underpins a lot of the British government's behaviour in Northern Ireland um, right right up through the 1990s. Okay. Uh, indeed, indeed, the, the document um, uh, I've seen as late as uh, mid-90s, they're still using this term interrelated strategy, in which they're saying that moving progress in Northern Ireland is going to require a mixture of economic strategic and political um, uh, advantages. Now, why as an economist that's important is there's a recognition of trade-offs between those three objectives. Mm. Um, and so when we look at Northern Ireland's failure to uh, close the productivity gap, I mean, there's some economists like David Fielding and their work uh, on the Troubles have turned around and said that the failure to close the productivity gap during the Troubles is an indicator of public policy failure. Um, I think this is a, a strange interpretation of the evidence and it shows why archival evidence is important. Because once you recognize that there are actually three objectives or three sets of objectives, I should say, the political, the military and the um, economic, and you're willing to trade off between them, that actually they were willing to trade off productivity gains. Yeah. <laughs> Very obviously, because creative destruction, you know, create, creative destruction is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, ordinarily, but if, if creative destruction means outmoded forms of production are replaced, uh, you need new industries to emerge. But if the political situation is deterring foreign direct investment, tourism, etc., 
new industries are not necessarily emerging. (laughs) So you very clearly, you want to focus on levels of employment rather than productivity. The good news is you stabilize employment. You hold Northern Ireland together. Mm. You stabilize employment levels, reduce unemployment levels as far as you can. That's good news as far as it goes. But of course, it means you don't tackle productivity. You don't tackle the underlying supply side problems of the economy. Yeah. And it also means that when you're trying to attract FDI, there are two problems. One is uh, the, the quantity of FDI you can attract is reduced. More importantly, perhaps, which takes us into the whole story of DeLorean, etc., mm. is the people that are willing to come in <laughs> may yeah. be opportunistic or of no quality. So I, think, so I think that when we're talking about, say, the story of DeLorean, the story of DeLorean doesn't really begin in 1978 or whatever people conventionally say. It actually begins in 1971 with Kern Cross, because Kern Cross likes the touch paper of the Northern Finance Corporation that becomes, uh, it's relabeled the uh, Northern Ireland Industrial Development Authority, I think, in 1973, 74. It's then wound up, uh, becomes the Industrial Development Board, sorry, the Northern Ireland Industrial Development Board, uh, and then that becomes later on the Industrial Development Board for Northern Ireland that now is Invest in I. So the whole uh, Rock family tree, if you like, mm. think of it that way, of, of inward investment in Northern Ireland today, Invest in I is traceable back to the Northern Ireland Finance Corporation 71, arguably. Okay, so that makes a lot more sense when it comes to interpreting the story of DeLorean in Northern Ireland. So perhaps we can set the scene here for those who may be unfamiliar, the DeLorean car that featured in Back to the Future was actually built outside of Belfast in Dunmurry, I believe. So John DeLorean was a businessman who cut his teeth in De- Detroit with General Motors and wanted to set up a sports car company. And he ended up in Northern Ireland where he got the most favourable deal in terms of uh, public supports. But the background that you provided there is very enlightening because when you hear the story, you wonder why were these subsidies offered? But it's now clear to me that there was a strong political motivation to keep employment rates high and the political value was so high that it justified extremely high subsidies. When we think about the DeLorean story, I mean, there's lots of angles I could go at. Um, but I think if you've been charitable, there's uh, what's called in development economics flying swan argument or a vanguard argument. Um, and the argument of a flying swan or the vanguard type argument is that a few key high performing in foreign direct investment projects act as a template or exemplars that other people follow. So in other words, the idea in development economics of flying swan type arguments in contemporary literature is you might want to put a large sum of money behind a project mm. because that project is so influential that everybody follows after it. And that's a charitable way to think about the DeLorean uh, project. Um, I think there's a story about the DeLorean project about going into the minutiae of Stormadon Whitehall, mm. where different interest groups within Whitehall had different agendas. Um, nice. The Treasury were the Treasury had long been sceptical about Northern Ireland. I mean, there's uh, very sardonic papers about Northern about Northern Ireland going way back, at least the 1950s, probably actually earlier, but certainly from the 1950s. There's lots of very sardonic. There's one one 
one note uh, by the great Leo Palatsky, um, uh, a really exceptional treasury economist. And he said something along the lines of, uh, we have to support democracy in Northern Ireland or what passes for democracy in Northern Ireland. So, um, he, you know, there, there's, this, there's this real cynicism in the treasury about Northern Ireland very, very early on. And that's, that's also traceable in the Lorraine story where they're very skeptical about the wisdom of it. Then you have the Northern Ireland Civil Service and the Northern Ireland Office London, uh, and they're very, very much taken by the idea of Delorean. Um, so the civil servants are very much the drivers of the story. Um, I again, no pun intended. Um, the yeah. So okay. So there are three possible. Okay. So there are three possible public sector uh, uh, locations. Um, the first was Puerto Rico. Um, the second was the IDA, actually in 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 Limerick, um, and uh, the North Northern Ireland. It'd be late seventy, so it'd be about seventy seven, seventy eight. Now, the the story the story about why he doesn't go to IDA is they offer a much lower set of subsidies. That's the first thing. I mean. Um, the second thing is that the IDA, uh, as you know, is arm's length from the Irish government. In a way, best I supposed to be today. Um, the point was that DeLorean very, very vociferously was lobbying the IDA um, in a way that raised the hackles of the IDA, and that led to people calling a halt on any negotiations. But I don't think even if they'd called a halt in negotiations that it would have ever gone down south because the scale of subsidy was much lower. Um, Puerto Rico and Northern Ireland were the two front runners, and indeed Puerto Rico thought it had it in the bag until the very late, late, late in the day. Um, I'm not sure that there's a convincing story uh, uh, exactly about the, the Northern Irish, how Northern Ireland came into the game. Nice. There are a variety of different versions of the story. So rather than indulge in myth-making, I think the important thing to note is it's roughly 40 days from original introduction to a memorandum, essentially a contract, been drawn up. Uh, so it's very, very rapid. And again, the scale of the subsidy offered by Northern Ireland uh, is, is a multiple of, of what's been offered by either Puerto Rico or the IDA. So the scale of subsidy is there. Um, yeah. The factory gets set up. There's a whole bunch of delays. Uh, there's also bad luck in terms of a cold winter, etc. But none of these stories should take away from the fact that the firm is very much undercapitalized in a lot of ways. Because you know, DeLorean had been trying for about '74 to '78 to get private sector investment, and he conspicuously failed. Um, and it was really at that point that that he transferred thinking about. Uh, public sector funding. Right. Um, so the story, the story about DeLorean then, again, like going through all the nuances, going back to the flying swan sort of argument, increasingly it becomes the case that DeLorean is hemorrhaging cash and the Treasury is increasingly saying, this is silly. And we've had a whole series of problems with the contract under which DeLorean is established. Mm. Uh, and rather than it acting as a vanguard 
to attract further investment in Northern Ireland. It's actually acting as a disincentive. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. To come to Northern Ireland. And I think when that kicks in, uh, it goes too far, then the money is pulled out and then the, the project collapses. But I think... Um, uh, I think we shouldn't get away from the fact that uh, there's a whole series of incentive problems. I mean, I've written about mm-hmm. how when you observe the actual employment levels in DeLorean, uh, they are massively underperforming their, their target yeah. um, until very late in the day. And then they go shoot over the target. And why is this? Well, why this is, I argue, is again, about going through all the details of all the contracts. Essentially, there's a provision in the contract if uh, DeLorean um, does not reach his employment target after, I think, five years, uh, then he has to basically pay back a bunch of money, which he's not inclined to do, obviously, and and probably not able to do. Uh, So that's the first thing. The second thing, of course, is I I believe, although you can't see it black and white in the sources, but I think there's there's enough there to make the inference that he's been very cunning. And what DeLorean really realized was that yes, the demand for the car was was not there, but the, the more jobs he created, the bigger the headache he was creating to close the factory, if you understand. And so he, he basically, I think his calculation was A, by massively hiring too many people, going on a hiring binge, um, Firstly, it means I hit my target prematurely for employment, so I'm never liable to pay back money because it's all about employment. Yeah. Um, and secondly, politically, and probably more importantly, the bigger the, the bigger employment levels I've hired, got hired at Deloren, the harder it is to shut the gates. Um, and I think the Treasury were very aware of that. I mean, there's, there's examples of documentation or... Uh, are, uh, that are in the files where they're, DeLorean is going round late in the day starting to blame the troubles for what's going on in the business. Now, uh, again, cutting a long story short, uh, there's not a lot to those arguments. But the problem is, of course, if DeLorean is going into the American media saying the political situation means his business can't succeed, then that acts as a deterrent for other investors coming to Northern Ireland. <laughs> So far from him being a vanguard or flying swan to attract further investment, he becomes a disincentive. Yeah, that's the first thing. The second thing is that uh, that the business cannot really see, cannot keep becoming a bottomless pit of cash. You know, so you know, Delorean, there's, there's like twenty odd million extra uh, in a variety of uh, guises that the Thatcher government plies in after it comes to power in 1979. 
you know, so a lot of sort of what I would call conspiracy theorists who've written about DeLorean say that the problem was simply Thatcher couldn't stand industrial policy and wanted to close the factory when she came in. Well, you know, she gave it 20 odd million quid, higher <laughs> <laughs> slice, dice the number, you know. Um, you know the, the, so I don't think it's that. I think actually what happens is the Treasury are empowered and eventually the Treasury say to the Northern Irish officials, you've had your fun, but you get a better close the gates. But it seems, it's really, um, it all comes together when you give it a historical perspective that there is this interrelationship between economy and, and the politics. So there is this political motivation to keep employment high. And that's what motivated this contract that led to uh, led to a business plan that was not really sustainable. And the fact, and also coupled with, with somebody who wasn't really putting together a good business plan in the first place. And, and then once you're in, it's very hard to pull out Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's it, it's funny. It's like you know, when you go back to contemporary documents in the nineteen fifties, you see civil servants talk about the linen lobby. Yeah. You know, when you go back to the early, late nineteen seventies, you see treasury documents talking about DeLorean, talking about sunk costs, and there's a massive awareness at the treasury that that this type of factory is going to be uh, sunk cost. It's 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 you know, if it goes out of business. You're not going to get another car firm yeah. in, in that factory, you know. Uh, uh, and and, and as things turned out, yes, it was massively sunk cost. So it wasn't simply the level of the resources that went in. You know, the official figures I think are was it eighty three million pound. Um, that's the official figures, but the eighty three million pound doesn't include, uh, for instance, all the money that the UK government paid to McKinsey's to monitor DeLorean. Right. Um, for a start, and more importantly, the eighty-three million pound doesn't include the opportunity cost. The cost per yeah. worker at Delorean it is it's huge. It's very, very high. Yeah. If you wanted to create the maximum number of jobs in West Belfast, uh, you would have been far better in in putting that money into house building. Public house building a would have created the direct employment benefits of the the the, the people involved in construction in yeah. housing. And secondly, the benefit you would have had of having the house building and the houses, the improved housing in West Belfast, mm. um, with all that would have generated, uh, there would have been social as well as economic benefit. Now, that would not nearly have been as glamorous as a, a, a car <laughs> that ends up in Back to the Future, maybe. I'm sorry, apparently it wasn't a very good car. I think in that famous scene in Back to the Future where he's going back to the future and he revs up, he can't get the car started and he revs it up and then it finally comes to life. That's overdubbed by some sort of American supercar. It was a very underpowered car, apparently. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 the problem is every time I've written about DeLorean, um, there are, there's a hardcore group of DeLorean fans out there who... <laughs> It's quite funny some of the descriptions of myself in some of their forums. Right. Um, uh, so-called, so, so-called professor is my favourite description. Um, yeah, uh, they, they're not very complimentary as soon as you comment on the car. Yeah, my understanding is the performance wasn't that great. No. I... Um, indeed, part of the reason why the DeLorean was eventually chosen to be the time machine in Back to the Future was uh, in the original script, the Back to the Future script had knocked around Hollywood for years and years and years. And um, the time machine in earlier scripts had been... Um, I think it was a fridge. A lorry. Or a and a fridge. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and 
I think I believe I'm right in saying that that inspired by I think the, the day the Earth stood still or Earthbury Flying Saucers, like one of one of these two movies. Right. Um, the Gullwing uh, left an impression in the in the mind of one of the writers, and other people have commented that the DeLorean car is a 1950s vision of what the 1980s would look like. Ah. Um, and I think if, if you think about the design of the DeLorean in that regard, uh, again, I'm very far from economics here, <laughs> that, that, that perhaps, perhaps culturally, uh, culturally, that's one of the reasons why the DeLorean had such resonance. Like people talk about it. So if I say about Brooklyn, you know, so I talk about the Bricklin. The Bricklin was a very similar Gullwing car that was uh, made in Canada, Canada, Newfoundland, right. and it died a death commercially in the mid seventies. But nobody's heard of the Bricklin. Yeah, um, no, it's the movie. The DeLorean, on the other hand, of course, people have. Indeed, John DeLorean actually wrote a letter to Robert Zemeckis, I think it was, uh, thanking him for the profile that the the, the the movie gave to the product. And yeah. I know that there. are there are people who will argue, and I would suggest they're right, that without Back to the Future, uh, the cultural resonance of the DeLorean would not be any greater than the Bricklin. So maybe if we go back to the economics before wrapping up and think a bit about the recent development of the Northern Irish economy. We're in a post-1998 Good Friday Agreement era. Things are a bit more settled politically. The global economy seems to be switching to one that is service-led. Would you see the Northern Irish economy uh, reflecting that global trend or do you see it developing in a different way? No, no, I think Northern Ireland certainly experienced deindustrialization and certainly has transformed into a overwhelmingly service-based economy. Um, the issue about Northern Ireland as a service-based economy is certainly it has a lot of high-value added consultancy-type jobs at the high end. Um, but the thing to note is a lot of the high-end, high-value jobs are located disproportionately mm. in Greater Belfast, indeed Belfast itself. That's the first thing to note. Second thing to note is that uh, it is a service-based economy with a very large mm. public sector um, uh, as, a, as a share of the economy. Um, and that, that actually, if we think about... Um, I think people at the Nevin Institute a couple of years ago wrote a paper looking at the spatial economics of the island of Ireland as a whole. And they made an argument that actually there were three regional economies on the island. There was essentially a greater Dublin economy, um, the rest of the south, as it were, then Northern Ireland. I would actually think, actually, if you, you look at a lot of the numbers, you could argue there's four regional economies. The, the greater Belfast economy is just like the greater Dublin economy. Uh, a, a very different animal than the rest of the jurisdiction. Um, and I think that since the Good Friday Agreement, certainly unemployment has come down, employment has grown up, uh, but productivity has continued to lag. Now, I think people like John Fitzgerald and Edgar Morgan Rothschild have been recently writing about this phenomena. Uh, and it is true, since the Good Friday Agreement, um, I, th I think it's fair to say that, yes, there have been improvements been made, to, in Northern Ireland, but it remains the case that Northern Ireland relies a lot on fiscal transfers um, from GB, um, and that, that, that this, in my the way I would present the case, 
the, the so-called subvention or fiscal transfer, as it's more recently been called, net fiscal balance, um, is the mirror image of the low productivity. Because the low productivity means that jobs aren't being created, so tax revenue hasn't been paid. Uh, and of course, that means that the public spending is ploughed into Northern Ireland, uh, but the tax revenue is not generated in Northern Ireland, so there's a gap. Um, whatever you think the gap, mm -hmm. the appropriate way to measure that gap is, is another question. But you know, I, I think uh, the a gap uh, that's that's substantial and actually, as a share of the region's economy, has actually grown over time, uh, is, is a problem. Is 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 arguably a problem in the economy. But it's more particularly the composition of the public spending, because I think there it, it, there is a literature like people like Danny Roderick and whatnot who've who've elsewhere written about why public different forms of public spending have very different repercussions for economic competitiveness. Uh, in Northern Ireland's case, uh, it is highly open as a region, but uh, a lot of the money that's plied into the Northern Irish economy. Uh, from public spending has been simply to stabilise and redistribute rather than to generate uh, a more competitive economy. So I think what is it the figure in terms of public public spending? Oh, it's it's some it's some very large figure. I think it's like expenditure per head in total in 2016. The figure was something 121 uh, relative to UK index of 100. But that covers uh, a massive variation where something like recreation and culture, is, the index is like 219 compared to the UK, whereas environmental protection is only 84. Um, so, I mean, if you think about it, you know, so there's a massive variation in not just the level of public spending in Northern Ireland relative to GB and the service-based economy, but it's also the composition. And I'm, I'm very much an economist who thinks composition is is key. I think a lot of problems. Going forward then, how would you see the Northern Irish economy developing? We're in the middle of a COVID-19 crisis, but we cannot forget that uh, other political issues such as Brexit, which may present hurdles or opportunities. Where would you see uh, the important issues arising? How would you see the Northern Irish economy developing in the immediate future? I think for Northern Ireland, as I've alluded to throughout the, the discussion, uh, let's th think about you know creative destruction. The real manifestation of that failure or lack of success is the productivity gap. Okay, now Northern Ireland hasn't closed that productivity gap on GB, um, and of course, as Nick Crafts has pointed out, it's not as if GB has been particularly clever in terms of productivity over over the very long run. So Northern Ireland's failure to close the productivity gap with GB looks all the worse for the fact it's not closing it on a, a national economy that it hasn't particularly performed particularly well. So I think productivity is the main Achilles heel. Um, what are the potentials? Well, the potentials are, I think, a lot of things that are important are, as often the case in economics, the things that are important in economics mm. are often very imprecise. And the things that are very important in economics are often very precise. And I think economists often focus on things that are precise because they're the paper. Those are yeah, things exactly. that get you in the American Economic <laughs> Review. Uh, but but, but the, the, pro the problem is, is those yeah. things may not be very yeah. important. They might be precise. Uh, 
So I think that the, the things the things that are going to to make your economy wealthier are going to be things like productivity. Now I think things like managerial quality matters a lot. I'm very convinced by the sort of uh, Van Rennen and Bloom line of argument in general that uh, that the quality of management does matter. So you know why does foreign direct investment on average on the planet have greater efficiency than indigenous firms? Well, because they are not they're not enculturated into bad management techniques. They have a corporate view, regardless where mm. you, where you are on planet Earth. So I think that foreign direct investment at its best is associated with better management and technology. So foreign direct investment certainly. Um, when you think about the, the other evidence, it does suggest that family firms underperform on average. Why? Well, because, of course, the nature of family firms on average means that people who aren't very capable but are well, mm-hmm. incredibly well connected, i.e. their children of the owners of the firm, are, are, are going to become the managers in the firm. Um, and that can lead to all sorts of problems in terms of retaining that talent, etc. So I think, you know, so there's issues about management that needs to be tackled in terms of improving productivity. Um, I think the stuff that John Fitzgerald and Edgar Mogherath have said about education more generally, I would agree with. Although I think that we should be very careful about how we interpret what we mean by improvements in human capital. I think it's very easy uh, to become obsessed with league tables mm. of exam results. Um, and I'm not convinced that those are a good way to measure uh, uh, value added in, in, in education. I think they're far too easy, easily gamed. Um, so I'd say there's education, management, those are two areas. Improvements of infrastructure. Uh, you know, there's plenty of examples of how infrastructure in Northern Ireland could be improved. Um, I think a general recognition that Northern Ireland or Ulster uh, in the late 19th century, you know, in the late 19th century, Ulster was the fastest growing region of Ireland. And Ireland was the fastest growing component part of the United Kingdom. Um, so in many ways, Ulster, late 19th century, as things were going wrong during the Second Industrial Revolution, we still shouldn't get away from the fact that despite that, it performed pretty well, uh, all things considered in that era of globalisation. Um, and I think that as we look at the future of the world economy, it's not as if that we shouldn't be outward looking and that there's a whole range of possibilities about green technologies, aging populations, uh, migration flows within Asia. There's a whole range of possibilities out there that I think a lot of firms in Northern Ireland um, could um, benefit from. But I think that's very much more about being export orientated and being innovative and entrepreneurial. Um, I, I don't believe that the future is simply sucking in foreign direct investment, no questions asked. I'm far more convinced by people like Moretto, who, like in New Geography of Jobs, talks about uh, raising skills levels um, and the ecology of skills within regions. I, I think those things um, all offer possibilities for uh, improving okay. the Northern Irish economy. But I think the general lesson will be, you know, again, as an economic historian, one thing you, you realise is if a problem takes a long time to emerge and persists for a long time, it's unlikely it can be solved very quickly. So problems like the UK economy 
UK underperformance mm. over the very long run cannot be rectified. You know, either the Labour government in the 60s uh, through national planning and the Thatcher government in the 80s with monetarism both found it very difficult to turn around the juggernaut. Um, and I think as an economic historian, that would be a, a general lesson, a cautionary note. I, I hope that's not too downbeat an ending, but uh, that's it. No, th- thank you very much, Graham. It was, it was very, very interesting. So thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So my thanks to Graham. I learned a lot about uh, the Northern Irish economy and I found it quite fascinating. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share with friends and colleagues. A five-star review on iTunes will be particularly helpful in getting the listeners on board. So thank you and all the best.